0: Father, I pray that as we come now to your word, that you would uh, richly bless this time. Father, um, I don't know everybody's situation. There's people here I've never met before. There's people whose lives I know little about. There's people I know very well, but I don't know the inner dealings of their hearts, and you do. And my prayer this morning, Lord, is that your timeless, unchanging word, that as we unpack it here today, Lord, that we would, that we would have you by your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word. And in, in the myriad of different circumstances of life that we're in, the, the variations in our lives, the, the trials, the struggles, the joys, and all the differences that we come here with today, that Lord, you would minister to each of us individually in our unique circumstances through the power of your word. Lord, we know that words are powerful, but nothing is as powerful as your word. And that even though we have such different backgrounds, such different experiences, your word is true to us all. And it changes us all. May our hearts be humble Lord, may we be teachable, and may you change us and minister to us, encourage us, lift us up, and comfort us this day we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Okay, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 if you are new or visiting we are we teach through the bible verse by verse we start in chapter one verse one of a book and we make our way through as long as it takes and we've just started a new book we just started first peter last week we were in verses three through five so i'll read those again for context it said blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again To a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time and last time as we read that i mean i myself just melting in those words we spent Tuesday night looking at them as well but there is this glorious truth of salvation predominantly in the future on the basis because if we are Christians God has caused us to be born again we have been born again into a living hope we have this hope we have this this future hope this future assurance we have this future inheritance that is guaranteed that can never be um, taken away from us, can never be destroyed, can never be removed. And we have this salvation to come. And Christians, we're used to talking about being saved, like we've believed and we have been saved, like it's a past thing. But here in this context, it's talking about salvation in the future. And what it's saying in this passage that we saw last time, essentially, is that God should be praised because he's caused us to be born again, if we have been born again. And as a result of that, we now have a future. We have a living hope, an inheritance. We have a salvation that cannot be taken away from us. And that ultimately that salvation will be worked out and completed in the last day. And there will be a day, and we look forward to that day, when we will no longer know sin. There'll no longer be aging or sickness or tears, but there will be redemption. We will be free, truly free. That day when our salvation is complete, that is something that God himself is guarding for us and so we we know that because we are relying on him and not on ourselves that that is something that we have to look forward to and that's our context then and so we come to verse six come to verse six As I mentioned to you guys last time, verses 3 through 12 is one very long sentence in the Greek. Um, Here in English, it's broken up into little sentences to help us, but we shouldn't lose the connection. It literally says, in which? In this. In, In this hope that we have, in this inheritance that we have, in this salvation that we have, in this future assurance that God has given us, in this, he says, you rejoice. In this you rejoice. And quite frankly, who wouldn't? And I think that the answer to that, and there is an answer to that, it's not just a rhetorical, oh nobody would, you know, everyone would rejoice in that. There's actually an answer to that. The, 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 the people who wouldn't rejoice in the future hope are the people whose eyes are too much in the present, are too much in the world, are too much on this earth. And there is and this is what we're going to be dealing with so much today and what he's going to be dealing with in these two verses. But we are bombarded. And I don't think there's a better word for it. From every angle and every corner in this world, we're bombarded by cares. We're bombarded by concerns. We're bombarded by pressures. We're bombarded by desires. We're bombarded by everything that is contained within this world. And every one of those bombardments, I'm not even sure that's a word, but maybe it is. Um, every one of those, those impacts is saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And so here, here's a trial. Look at me. Here's, here's someone who's sick. Look at me. Here's a worry. Look at me. Here's, here's what people think of you. Look at me. Here's, here's our, my, my future. Here's my retirement. Look at me. Here's my health. Look at me. And, and all of these things are saying, look at me, focus. And God says, no, no, no. Look at me. And see, in these, just these few words, when it says in this rejoice, There is a challenge in that, even in that, that that we as Christians need to say, you know what? There may well be sickness and trials and death and suffering and fears and worries and concerns, and they may all be legitimate. But in this, I can rejoice and i want us to see that in the context where he says in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials and so in the context of grieving let alone trials in the context of grieving there is the word rejoice god never guarantees us happiness Happiness is a funny old thing it comes and it goes and sometimes it goes for a long time and sometimes it's overwhelming and it's an emotion but I I think it would be helpful for us to distinguish between what we call happiness and what the Bible calls joy you see if you if you weep and mourn as many of us have done already this year then there is in that morning no happiness. There's not, a, a funeral is not a, a fun place. There's no, um, there's no joy in, in weeping, there's no happiness in weeping, but, but there can be joy. And, and, and as Christians, we've got to be able to, to, to embrace that paradox. That paradox that though I weep, in my heart there can be joy. Though this situation, you know, whether it's death or sickness or, or, or cancer or, or losing your job. And I'm, and I'm just talking about things that I know that some of you have had to deal with this year already. And though you have these things, and though your pain may be great, and though your tears may be voluminous, at the same time, there is joy in this, not in that, but in this. And so when a trial comes, when a death comes, when suffering comes, we don't say, oh, suffering, whoopee doo da hallelujah. That's just, you know, I was just thinking the other day, Lord, just not enough suffering in my life. Bring me a bit more. No, 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 no. We don't rejoice in it per se. But what we say is, though this comes, I still have that living hope. I still have that inheritance. You remember what we heard last time about that inheritance? Let's get those words right, shall we? That inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. So when cancer comes, does that inheritance get affected in any way? When your friends betray you, does that affect your inheritance in any way? When you stumble and you sin again, does that affect your inheritance in any way? No, it doesn't. Not at all, not remotely. And so that is how, in the midst of trials, we can rejoice in this. And I tell you, as we go through the rest of this we need to keep this as our foundation this morning the maturing of our faith comes through trials if we will keep our eyes on him if we keep our eyes on what is to come and i'll, I'll be really frank with you the modern church has dropped the ball here in the most spectacular fashion from the extreme nonsense churches that have your best life now, touch the screen and be healed and all that kind of bogus rubbish. Garbage, I think you say, don't you? My, my Anglicanism is coming through. Um, That that all that kind of stuff goes on. But even beyond that, you know, we have churches that are so keen to be seeker friendly that it's like five reasons for this and four ways to help your marriage and the seven steps of friendship and and all of this kind of stuff. And what it's doing is it's it's focusing us on now. And I tell you guys, I know it is counterintuitive, but again and again and again, the scripture reminds us this, that maturing in our faith, does not come from hyper-focusing on the issues of our practical lives here and now, so much as having our eyes on where we are going to be, having our eyes on what he has done for us, which is coming up towards the end of this section, not today, but in future weeks. You know, he deals with our future salvation. He deals with our past salvation. He says, this is what God is going to do for you, because this is what he has done for you. And in this you rejoice, and in this is your hope, and in this is your strength. Strength, and in this is your maturing. And if we get distracted for the sake of being trendy or accessible or applicable or, or, or um, you know, woke or anything horrific like that, you know, if, if, if somehow we just want to kind of make ourselves fit for everybody, then we are failing miserably because you know what? None of us Fit or relate with God instinctively he is the God above all gods he is beyond our understanding he is beyond our comprehension and when we get stuck in this rut of ruminating in this world and all that it has and all that it gives and all that it does and all it makes us feel then it consumes us and our eyes need to be on him so I, you lose your job A loved one dies tragedy comes in you know what in a few short years this will all be gone and you will be in his arms and you will look him in the eye you'll be with him face to face there will be no more sin and you will in that moment recognize that everything he did was good and everything he did was for his glory and you will rejoice And this time, this life is like a breath and it goes and it's gone. And we would do well to not be distracted by it. I'm a, I, think, I'm a, I, I was going to say approaching, I think my wife's going to laugh at that. I think I am in middle age now. Am I, Jen? Am I middle aged? I probably am. When I, when I was a young man, life, life is just, it just seems like this ridiculously long thing. If you're young, it's life's long, right? I mean, you know, old people are really old. And, you know, and, and when you're really young, you actually look forward to birthdays. <laughs> you remember that, some of you? You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to be a bit older. I can do more things. I can be more responsible. I'm going to go to college or whatever. You know, it's like, you know, I don't know what age it stops. But, you know, you get to that point where you're, oh, not another birthday. And when you're there, you think life is so long. And then you get older and... I know you know my youngest son is 16 and I remember being 16 like it was a moment ago and you just realize just how brief life is but my hope my inheritance and my salvation is eternal it will never ever end and that's why segue back to the text in this you rejoice Though, now, for a little while. Now, he's talking about rejoicing. And we're not going to do the whole passage. So, well, We, 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 yeah, we might get through it. He talks about rejoicing, verse uh, 6. And then if you look ahead in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice. So we have rejoice in verse 6 and rejoice in verse 8. And in the middle, we have free those or maybe three all those, if that's what your Bible says. In other words, we're rejoicing although, even though, despite, maybe is another way of saying it. So we're rejoicing, we've got a rejoicing sandwich, if you want the theological term. Rejoicing sandwich. Rejoicing in verse 6 and rejoicing in verse 8. And in between, there's three things that despite them, that although they're there, even though they're there, we still rejoice. And here are our three those. I'll do three of them quickly, and then we'll go back to this first one. Um, it says, uh, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. Then if you go down to verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. And then after that immediately, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. So there are those. So let's look at this first one. Okay, so in this, in this salvation that we have, in this hope that we have, in what is to come, we rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You've been grieved by various trials. Various is a funny translation. The Greek actually says manifold. Like, you know, again, that bombarding word, lots of trials. But this is why I was saying about life being brief. He says it's a little while, it's, it's just a short time. If you're born into trials, if you're born into suffering, if you're born into pain and you live a long life and your whole life is one of suffering and trials and pain, you've suffered for a little while. Because in eternity, a hundred years is going to seem like nothing. Eternity is one of those weird things that we can never really get our heads around. Um, But certainly by any comparison, this life is now for a little while. So we rejoice, even though, despite the fact that now in this life for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials. Now, some of you are going to be reading that text and you're going to be saying, Lord, please let it not be necessary for me. Please, not for me. <laughs> for, let it be necessary for them, but, but not for me. That's not what it means. I hate to break it to you. What it means is, perhaps a better translation would be, since it's necessary. It, the, 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 the issue here is the one of necessity and need. Uh, uh, you know, there are times in your life where you may get a cruise. And I don't mean literally going on a boat. I'm talking about your spiritual life. I'm talking about the, you just the life generally. You, you, you may get, a, you know, you, got, you guys uh, in this country, I think, get less vacation time than almost any country in the world. So you like your vacations. You, you make the most of them, right? So so you have life going on, you have this vacation, and you just go, and, and there may be parts of your spiritual life where everything just goes really well. I remember being in England and pastoring and preaching a series on the sovereignty of God. And one of the sermons was entitled, The Sovereignty of God and Suffering. And I stood up to preach that sermon and I said, you know, I feel, a, I feel a bit of a cheat teaching this because, you know, my life's been pretty good. I've not really had to endure so much suffering. It was as if God was laughing in heaven. Because it was almost within the next month or so that the the most horrific period of my life just exploded upon me. You see, you might get easy periods. I pray that you do. But there will be a time when it will be necessary for you to go through trials. And for some, your trials might be light and few. For others, your trials may be great. Here's the other funny thing about trials. Sometimes you'll see someone going through a trial and you'll go, come on, that's no big deal. Because quite frankly, if that happened to you, that would be nothing. And yet you fall apart, something that they would walk through with in a breeze. Because trials are unique to us. There are some things that that are horrific to us, that would be easy for others, and vice versa. But they are all necessary. And so we have a life where there are, for a time, during this short life, the necessity of trials. And why is it necessary? See, this is the question that that confuses us, that bugs us, that that we wrestle with. This This is the question that the psalmist would cry out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus famously says on the cross, but he's simply quoting from Psalm 22. And so many of these Psalms are people saying, where are you, God? Why is this happening? How can this be? We spoke a few weeks ago about the alphabet of lament. The A of the alphabet of lament is acknowledgement. Being able to cry out to God and say, this is how I am. This is horrific. This is horrible. I do not want to have to go through this. This is painful. But the B and the C is beholding God and crying out to him. Having our eyes upon him. Because it's only with him that it all makes sense. And the reason for God necessitating trials in our lives is given in verse seven, the so that, so that. Here is your reason. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there is an Old Testament allusion here, so we'll be turning to our Old Testaments in a moment, but let's just look at the big picture, okay? The big picture is this. The so that is linked to the word proving. Proving. Here translated in my version as tested genuineness. The idea of trials is they show you what you've got. They show you what you've got. If you, um, if you were uh, here in California... I'm gonna get my history completely wrong so I'll just say a lot of years ago before someone more knowledgeable laughs at me for guessing wrongly but if you were here many years ago at the time of the gold rush and you're panhandling and collecting you're trying to get your gold and they would wash it off in the river to take off the dirt to see what they had and if you had gold you had gold BC gold can be covered in dirt and it can be washed off And even when it's washed off gold is then purified in the fire that's what's being referenced here in this text and we'll talk about that more in a minute but our faith is like gold that is purified through the fire and if you have faith you have faith if you have gold you have gold but it might not be pure it might not be perfect So if you've got this gold of some sort but it's not completely pure and you want your gold to be pure and and have the best value, the best monetary value, what do you do with that gold? You stick it in a furnace and you heat it up and the impurities that are within that gold that you could not see when you looked at it now come up and rise to the surface. That's you and me. 'Cause you can come to church and you can play church and you can pretend and you can come along and think we can all think that you're this really lovely person and that you you, you do everything well and that you treat your spouse nicely and that your kids think you're a rock star and that you know you're you're just an all around good person. You're just wonderful. Oh, you're just you're just so lovely. And if you think that about me, you're completely wrong. None of us are. We know that we're not. Right? I mean, it's often been said, you know, if I were to see what was really in your heart, I'd probably walk on the other side of the street from you. But that's okay, because if you could see my heart, you'd probably want me there. And so what happens is that God brings trials in our lives, and as we go along, week by week, day by day, and and we think we're doing okay, right? And then something happens... And then all of this sin that was so disguised, all of these impurities, imperfections, failings, struggles and trials in our lives that that, that have been ably hidden away day by day, week by week, they all come to the surface. We're we're exposed. Our, Our impurities are exposed by the fire, just like it is with gold. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But anyway, this is a reference to Zechariah. Uh, And so we're gonna turn there. If if you're like, oh my goodness, where on earth is Zechariah, you just go back to the beginning of your New Testament, go to Matthew, and then you're about a few pages back from there. You've got Malachi, and then you've got Zechariah. It's Malachi, by the way, he's not Italian, it's not Malachi, Malachi. And then we have Zechariah, and we're in Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13. Um, regulars at this church will know when we see something in the New Testament that is referencing something that's in the Old Testament, we always go back and look at that Old Testament passage in context so we understand it and then we come back and see how it's being used. Um, also regulars will know this is the point where I am challenged to uh, not get distracted too much by Zechariah 13 uh, and try and get back to 1 Peter before we all, our lunch gets cold. Anywho's. Zechariah 13 and verse uh, 7. Uh, this is a messianic prophecy here in Zechariah 13. Um, a wake, o sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me declares Yahweh of hosts I, and by the I'm not going to be able to skim this because it's too good and it's too much fun so I'm just going to quickly do a flyby uh, exposition of this Away goes sword against my shepherd God is the one saying this Yahweh the name of God Lord capital letters is Yahweh God is the one declaring that the sword should strike the shepherd And the shepherd is the one, it says here, who stands next to him. It does not simply mean spatially close. It speaks of equality. God is speaking of his equal. And God is saying that his equal, the shepherd, should be struck. I love these passages because they're a constant reminder to us that the idea of the the Trinity, the idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man, that these aren't New Testament ideas, let alone church ideas, These these are rooted in the Old Testament. That the shepherd, God would strike the shepherd though he is his equal. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand again to the little ones. And so often with Old Testament prophecy, we have these panoramic pictures whereby he sees something that covers this broad range of time that are unified by a central theme. And here, the sheep that are scattered, specifically in this context, are the Jews. So he says, strike the shepherd, That's Jesus. The sheep, that's the Jews, will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. So after the striking of Jesus, when the Jews are scattered, which historically happened with the fall of Rome in 70 AD and then again um, a few decades later, that when the Jews were scattered from the land, they were scattered, that then he turns his hand against them that is why though we preach a jewish covenant a jewish message about a jewish messiah or a based in jewish foundations from jewish patriarchs vast majority of christians today are gentiles they're not jews why because the jews are blinded god has turned his hand against them you can read about that in romans 9 10 and 11. we won't get distracted too much in the whole land declares the lord declares yahweh Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. Just understand clearly what that's saying in context. It's saying that when God deals with the punishing of the Jews, when he turns his hand, like he turns his hand against the Jew, the the, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, he's also going to turn a hand against the Jews. And as well as them being blinded, as we know in that, he says ultimately, two-thirds will be cut off and perish. Two-thirds. That is something that hasn't happened yet. That's an eschatological future, as we call it. In the Holocaust, Hitler, a man of immense evil, I think perhaps, though I'm plucking at straws, I confess, perhaps possessed by Satan himself, but certainly controlled by the enemy in a very profound way. He wiped out Under the Holocaust, one-third of all living Jews at that time. Six million people. One-third. At the end time, the Antichrist will wipe out two-thirds. That's horrific. But notice that God's hand is sovereign over it all. And then look at what happens to the third. And then you see God's purpose in this. I will put the third into the fire and refine them as one is refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. This is what's being referenced in 1st Peter. And what's going to happen as a result? So here's all the Jews, they go through the fire, two thirds are burnt up, one third are purified through that same fire. And what happens? They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say Yahweh is my God. One day the Jewish people who predominantly reject Jesus Christ will one day recognise him as their Messiah. And as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel of that time, on that day, all Israel will be saved. And God's covenants and promises to them will come to fruition. And that can only happen because of the fire. You've got to see that. We've been dealing with the exile of Israel going through Isaiah. Israel had an idolatry problem. God says, you'll be my people. Yes, we'll be your people. You'll keep my laws. Yes, we'll keep your laws. So Moses goes up the mountain, comes down with the tablets. And what are they doing? They're worshipping another god. It took him about three seconds. That's the equivalent of cheating on your honeymoon. That's what was going on there. And they had this idolatry problem that they couldn't shift. And you know what? For recent history, Israel, for all of its sins, for all of its failings, for all of its problems, for all the blindness that the Jews are under, do you know the one thing they don't struggle with anymore? Idolatry. Why? Exile. God said, you love those false gods so much, go and have a party at their house. Go to their land. Go to the land that worships those gods. Go to the land that those gods oversee. And so the people of the gods they worshiped came in, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, destroyed the land, took them captive and took them into exile so they could go and be with the gods that they were so darn desperate to worship that cured their idolatry. And though eschatologically, there will be a greater judgment and suffering and and persecution of the Jews than we even saw in the time of the Holocaust, that through it, through the end of it, God will do the greatest miracle of all. He will bring the Jewish people home and he will bring them to salvation. Now that's the context of Zechariah 13. Let's go back to 1 Peter and let's see how he uses that. So when First Peter in chapter 1 and verse 7, he, when he uses words like testing and fire and gold, he's, he's making this reference back. He's kind of hinting back at Zechariah 13. And Zechariah 13 was speaking of the long-term permanent future of the Jewish people and how God was going to accomplish it. Now, we saw two weeks ago, when we did our introduction, that in chapter 1 and verse 1, when Peter uses the word dispersion, he's using a uniquely Jewish word. And Peter, being the apostle to the Jews, he is writing predominantly to Jewish believers. And so to the Jewish believers, he's essentially saying this. He says, hey, you guys remember Zechariah 13? You remember that? That God is going to take your people And he is going to purify you all through fire. So that all who remain worship me. He says, well, you know what I'm doing with my people? You're kind of the first fruits of that. You already believe. And, but yet you're not complete. The work's not done because the salvation is going to be revealed. When does he say in verse 5? In the last day, in the last time so you the chosen few you the elect of israel you've got to be purified there's no other way and that's not unique to israel we have to be purified and the only way that we're purified is through trials it's how god does it it's how he's always done it he he, he purifies us through trials do you know in churches like ours there are certain sins that people are like oh we can't have that sin and what have you you know there's sins that are sometimes so intolerable to us that people come in the door and we don't even want them to be here shame on us we all carry our own sins in here we're not a church that tolerates sin we're not a church that won't address sin we, we are we will and we and we do but we all come with our sins right and churches like ours typically don't allow certain sins, but other sins can fly under the radar. In some churches, certain sins are even encouraged. There are sins where things like pride and and greed and power are all sought after and glorified. Shame on us, should that be any of us. And you can live a life of selfishness and of pride and no one will know, other than your spouse, probably. <laughs> they tend to know most things, right? But you can, you can pull the wool over people's eyes. You can go through life, and you can have all of these sins affecting you in everything that you say, in everything that you do, in how you react. And, and, and you, you just don't know it. You know? It, it's like, you know... It's like someone says, hey, can I do this? Yeah, you can do that. Can I borrow this? Yeah. Oh, he's such a nice guy. And what a nice guy. He always, he always says yes. he's always nice to me, he always kind to me. And then you're with that same person in traffic and someone cuts them up and you're like, and like. Where did that come from? It was always there. It was always there. But it wasn't until someone cut you up that it came to the surface. Now, that's not a big trial. Unless you're like me. It feels pretty big to me. But anyway, it's really not, it's not that big a trial. We've got to convince ourselves. It's not a big trial. But there are other trials and things come up and you're like, where were they? You see, I know personally, and I'll be really vulnerable with you here today. I know personally that I would teach on the sovereignty of God. I, as I said, I taught on the sovereignty of God in suffering. And I I, I prepared for it, and I studied the scriptures, and I I believed it, and I knew it. And I think, if I were to go back and re-listen to it, I think it would be a pretty darn good sermon, if I'm quite frank. But, when God raised up the perfect storm, when everything that was the worst for me to go through, when that, from a, a calm sea... A, a, a tsunami wave just rose up from nothing just to devastate mine and my family's life for years I saw in my reaction that I was nowhere near ready. If you'd asked me before it came I'd have said "Yeah, suffering I, 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 could, I could tell you about that. Should we turn to the Bible? Let's have a look. Let me, let me tell you what happens in suffering. What the purpose is. What it's about. How. And it came and things came up out of me and I'm like whoa where did that come from I think my wife had a better idea it was there all along but I was surprised and we all do that the fire exposes but Peter then takes this analogy and he gives us a twist he, he tells us something that's different that's important because trials like fire and our faith, like gold, it, it, it exposes those impurities, right? So that they can be dealt with, and we can be cleansed, and we can be cleaned. My, my goodness, by the way, if your if your sins are exposed, if you go through stuff and you see your sin more clearly, don't ignore it. You, what you don't want to do is for the fire to go away and for that those impurities just to go back into the gold. You want to be clearing that stuff out while the fire is ongoing, do you not? That's how they purify gold. But here's the difference, here's the difference, okay? He says this, he says your faith is like gold, obviously that's the analogy, that was the analogy from Zechariah 13. But he says it's more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire. See that to me is fascinating. here's gold, you stick gold in the furnace. I mean, if you took your, if you had your favorite book, if you took your favorite piece of clothing, if you took anything like that and you said, I really love this bit of clothing. I want it to be the best bit of clothing it can be. I know, I'll put it in a fire. It's not going to work out alright, is it? You know, you're, it's going to get damaged. But gold is this fascinating thing, in that you put gold in the fire and the impurities are exposed and you can purify that gold. But that doesn't make it indestructible. It's actually, I think, that technically it's referred to as almost indestructible. I think that's how people view it. But biblically, it's destructible. <laughs> it's not going to last. It won't go into eternity. And as we often say, you can't take your bank balance with you. Whatever gold, whatever riches you have, it doesn't come with you. Gold, in every sense, is ultimately perishable. But I tell you this, your faith isn't. Your faith is not perishable. This is the hymn we sung this morning. All creatures of our God and King. I might have to look at the, look at the words. <laughs> Actually, it's not in the, in the bulletin, is it? It's in the songbook, so I won't, I won't, I'll, I'll probably get it wrong. But in that last verse of all creatures of our God and King, that's that wonderful line, it says, Who then shall fall on bended knee? Remember singing that this morning? I love that line. Who then shall fall on bended knee? And the answer is, all creatures of our God and King. I kind of like whenever that song, we sing that song and it's, uh, it's already gone up. Is it, what's, it called, what's it called when it goes up a key? I don't know. Don't tell me. Tell me after, but it's gone up the key and it's all grand. And your emotions are there and you're like, who then shall fall on bended knee? I want to go, me, I will. You will. We all will. We all fall on bended knee. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's Isaiah 45. That everyone will bow before Yahweh. And what Paul does in Philippians 2 is he takes that text from Isaiah and he says when you're bowing before God, you're bowing before Jesus. It's a declaration of the deity of Christ. He says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, is Yahweh in the context of Isaiah 45. Everyone will confess that Jesus is God. And that's it. Everybody will. Everybody will. If your faith says that Jesus Christ is God and Saviour, and I place my trust in him, then God will take that faith and he will purify it through trials. Because though you say, I trust in him, everything that we do every day of our life screams quite often, I don't fully trust him. (laughs) Does it not? And so the trials help us to trust him more and more, it purifies our faith. But if you believe... That Jesus Christ was just a prophet. If you, like Nicodemus in John 3, believe that he was sent from God in some kind of way, but you don't really know how. If you believe that Jesus, maybe he's God in some way, but I don't really know how it impacts me. If you believe that Jesus didn't even exist, if what you believe about Jesus is not trusting him as God and the saviour, then that faith will last for eternity too. In one sense. It will last for eternity in the sense that the consequences of that faith will never be movable or changeable. That that inheritance is set as well. But it will change in the sense that there will come that day when every person, whether through tears or clenched teeth, will have to acknowledge that Christ was God everybody will be faced with him and everybody will have to deal with him gold will pass away this earth will pass away but our faith our faith won't pass away and that my friends is why it doesn't matter how much gold you have it doesn't matter how pure your gold is it doesn't matter how successful you are it doesn't matter how, um, how wonderful your spouse is, how great your kids are. It doesn't matter how successful you are in work. It doesn't matter how happy you are in all various things because the day will come when you will stand before your God and the savior of this world, Jesus Christ, and you will acknowledge who he is. And on that day, it's too late. Faith is infinitely more valuable. Because faith is something that will never pass away. When we believe when we trust that inheritance do those words not mean so much more now. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Nothing will ever take it away. And so God is going to purify our lives through the trials of fire. And then we may be found, the genuineness of our faith may be found and that will result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That when we have true faith and when we go through trials and our faith remains and our faith is purified, then there will come a day when we are there at the end and we see Jesus Christ and there will be praise and there will be glory and there will be honour and i know this next bit's hard guys Uh, i know it's really hard and it's as hard for me as it is for you but let's do it anyway when we see him we will praise him we will give him honor and we will give him glory and this is in the context of the trials he puts us through when you lose someone, you will look at him on that last day and you'll rejoice and you'll give him glory. If you have suffer from uh, some debilitating disease, some long-term chronic sickness, if you have cancer, if you have um, heart disease or, or whatever, you will look him in the eye and there'll be glory and there'll be honour and there'll be praise. If you've had to go through a horrendous divorce, On that day there'll be glory and honor and praise if you've been abused in some way there'll be glory and honor and praise i don't understand it i don't understand now why we go through the things that we do other than to say this that god is good that he can be trusted and whenever we doubt that we look at the cross and we look at how he sent his son to die in our place for our sins that he suffered in our place so that we could be redeemed and when we see that love we say okay I know you did that so I can trust you with this and I can trust you with, with whatever it is and there will come a day when we see him and our life has gone with all of its trials and with all of its suffering and with all of its pain and we see him and we say I get it you're good you're glorious I praise you I honor you Is that hard for us to believe? Does that rattle our faith? That's the kind of reason we need purification. So that these things can just be burned within us. I've said, and I'll leave it with this today... um, I mentioned before Psalm 136, and I, you know, apologies repetition for those who heard it a couple of weeks ago. But as a kid, I remember a worship song when I was first a young Christian. I was I got saved like 12 or 13, 12 I think it was, and so there were some worship songs when I was a teenager that I remember from that kind of era, and one of them was based on Psalm 136. And if you ever know Psalm 136, it, it says a line, I and mean, it says, "His steadfast love endures forever." And then it says another line, his steadfast love endures forever. I kid you not, half of this psalm simply says his steadfast love endures forever. Line one, his steadfast love endures forever. Line two, his steadfast love endures forever. Line three, and so on, and it's a long psalm. (laughs) It's a very long psalm. And when we sung that song, I would be frustrated because I was like, well, love endures forever. It's like this song endures forever. That's what endures forever. Patience is one of those things that trials have been needed for. (laughs) Probably some more. (laughs) And you know what? Today I get it. Today I get it. Because when you stand in the midst of the fires of life, and when you stand there and your life is being brutalized before you, when you stand there and things that you prayed and you begged God would never happen are happening in front of you. And when you're having to deal with grief on an astronomical level, then you need to have in your head, his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And the Jews would look back to Egypt. They would look back to how they were slaves in Egypt and how God through the Passover and the passing of the Red Sea, he took them out and he freed them from Egyptian slavery. And that's why in the Psalms, again and again, there's references to the waters, and the parting, and the passing, and and, and the passing over, and all of these things. There's always references in the Psalms to the Passover, because the Jews, when they wanted to remember that God was a steadfast God, whose love endures forever, who is faithful to the end, who will never abandon them, they would go back and look at the Passover. Lamentations 3, one of the most brutal passages in the whole of Scripture. He is seeing babies thrown against walls. He's seeing men pierced and sliced apart. He's seeing women raped. He's seeing this absolute devastation of Jerusalem and and of Israel. And he's, he's expressing all that's going on. And then he says, but then this I call to mind. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy's never come to an end. He's there in the midst of flames and he looks back and you know what? We are in such a privileged position. We're in such a privileged position because we don't look back to the Passover. We look back to what the Passover was a shadow of. We look back to the, not the freedom from the slavery of Egypt and the passing over of the angel of death because of the blood of the lamb. We look back to the freedom from the slavery of sin by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And that God's wrath passes over us because we're covered by his blood. That's what we look back to. And I'm telling you this, no matter what we have to endure in life, no matter what we have to endure, if we can trust God. At the cross of Calvary if we can remember that is him that's his steadfast love then there in the midst of trials in the midst of the fire we can say his steadfast love endures forever he died on the cross for my sins his steadfast love endures forever nothing will separate me from the love of God his steadfast love endures forever and we will remember and that is why Peter began this letter by saying you have a hope you have an inheritance. There is salvation that is going to be fulfilled. Those things will not be taken away. God is protecting you. He's guarding you. So you can walk through the fire. He's going to mature you. He's going to purify you. But we can walk through the fire. Because we trust him. Because we know who he is. And that then is what he will go on to say, as we see him Uh, As we see next time when we'll come back and pick up in verse 8 next time. But for you guys and for us today, my, my encouragement to you is this. Whatever you're walking through, God is good. It may not seem like his sovereignty, him being in control, and his goodness can be reconciled in the midst of whatever it is you're going through. But look at the cross and remember This is the God. This is who I trust. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the richness of this this book before us in 1 Peter. And I pray, Lord, that these words wouldn't be empty. They wouldn't be fleeting. I pray they would rest deep in our hearts. That whether we're enduring trials now, whether they are before us, ahead of us, or behind us. That we wouldn't look back with bitterness, we wouldn't look ahead with fear, but we would know that you can be trusted. And we would know that our future is an eternal one. Our faith will not be destroyed, but it will be purified. Father, I pray that these beloved people would be able to trust you better than I did on their dark days. I pray that we all would learn to walk by faith, to trust you not just for salvation at the end, but to trust you each and every day. And as we live that way, may you be glorified in our lives. Amen.